This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be finding out how to toughen up DNA nanostructures with silica and meeting a robot chemist. Plus, we'll be hearing how the genomes of some very important microbes could help scientists predict global levels of greenhouse gases. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, reporter Adam Levy's been talking to a chemist who's been on the hunt for a high-tech lab assistant. For chemist Lee Cronin, chemistry is all about discovery. And despite methods and techniques that have developed leaps and bounds over the centuries, for Lee, the process of discovery is still all about the journey. It's very difficult when you ask a chemist in the lab to go discover something. It's a bit like... Uh, asking someone to go in a boat now and find a new uh, continent, something invariably goes wrong and more interesting happens. And then we follow that up. And I think that is the point where conventionally a lot of discoveries are made today. But despite his love of the voyage, Lee thinks it's time to change up the process. Not the aspect that relies on some magical combination of luck and intuition, but exactly how the search is carried out. Lee wants to automate the quest for new reactions. Machines already exist to automate certain tasks in chemistry, but they tend to follow specific programming and recipes rather than searching for new discoveries. There have also been attempts to aid discovery with machine learning, where a computer is trained with data and learns how reactions might operate. Lee wanted to make a machine that could learn and carry out tasks, I called him up to find out more. So what we've tried to do is use machine learning to classify whether the outcome of a reaction, um, that is when you, when you mix two chemicals together, is um, whether something has happened or not. And then you can use that as a basis to then, you know, navigate around, if you like, your, your uh, uh, new chemical space or sail your yacht around your unknown islands and map them. And your machine isn't just learning, it's doing, it's doing experiments. Yeah, we do three crucially important things. Number one, we start with an empty database, except just it knows the ingredients that we have at our disposal. 
Number two, it just randomly selects the ingredients, the chemicals to add together, so it has no bias. And number three, it does this in real time. So it actually decides uh, what to do and then mixes the chemicals together and watches what happens. When we say it in these sentences, we're actually talking about a robot. Um, can you describe what this robot is? Because it's not like some kind of humanoid thing sitting at a, a chemistry lab table, right? No, but actually it does things very similar to what a humanoid would do or a human being would do at the chemistry lab table. And a chemist would typically mix chemicals together in a, in a round bottom flask and put on a stirrer and heat it up. And that's what this robot does. You plug the chemicals into the robot and it moves those chemicals as liquids in, in, a, in, a, in a solvent to the reactor. And then the reaction happens and the robot automatically takes a sample and moves it to a detector. And it's, and it's basically like a human being using its eyes or your ears. So it happens really quickly and uh, seamlessly. So is this really a closed system? Is this doing everything or is there still need for, for human input at some stage? Oh, yeah, the human is crucial. This is not about replacing the human. So what this robot does, it's just a labor-saving tool. The robot is only as good as the chemist that's trained it. Well, the robot would do the experiment, and the chemist would tell the robot whether that, the outcome of the experiment was reactive or unreactive, so whether something happened or not. And so, when they, and so the robot would then start to guess after a while, and then the human would go, yep, you're right, you're right. And then that gets to a crucial point where it's done about 10% of the possible combinations, it is able to predict what will happen next. And it just speeds up our ability to discover new reactions and new molecules. Human time is limited. And so if the, the, one of the things that the robot can do is um, basically do reactions that the human doesn't have time to do and would normally discard. It can do about 36 reactions a day. And a chemist would only typically do maybe three or four such reactions a day. We, we've described how the process works, but have you actually managed to, to find anything novel with this robot? I'm pretty happy to say that I think I could convince maybe nine out of ten chemists that the robot had done some um, reactions where the outcome couldn't be predicted beforehand. And, um, and that's, for me, really exciting. Robots and automated machines are already used in chemistry, in industry. Just how different is the system that, that you're using here from, from, from the kind of robots that might exist in other contexts in chemistry? What's different about our system is its integration and the fact it searches for reactivity. What we're doing is actually quite um, unusual in that it basically is able to search without any uh, target in mind. And then what we needed to make sure we were doing, not just having new sensors and not have any target, but actually having machine learning to actually correctly search those uh, reagent or ingredient combinations. What actual applications will, will these differences be useful for? Oh, we're really excited because we think that this, in terms of discovery science, anything where you need new molecules, so new drugs, new dyes, drug delivery systems, new materials. Now, there's a problem when you're discovering when you don't know what you're looking for. So the next thing that we're going to do is add another little sensor, but this sensor onto this will then have a desire and say, right, we want to find, I don't know, the bluest blue thing. So let's do, so now let's not just look for new stuff, but it has to be new and blue. And personally, what are you most excited about, about the opportunities that, that having this integrated robot system could open up? Well, I'm hoping that what we will do is it will tell us um, more about the laws of chemistry 
and allow us to discover molecules that we just wouldn't have access to using our existing knowledge. I kind of liking a bit like to um, writing poetry. Shakespeare was really interesting writing poetry and, 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 uh, and verse because he invented new words. Um, what I'm interested in this robot, seeing what they do, is able to invent new reactions. Then those reactions can be translated back to the normal chemistry language, and then the chemist is able to use those new uh, reactions to make new molecules. For me, that's super exciting. That was Lee Cronin from the University of Glasgow, speaking with Adam Levy. And if you want to see what Lee's robot chemist looks like, have a look over on Twitter, at Nature Podcast. And, spoiler alert, it doesn't really look like anything from The Terminator. The climate is warming as more and more greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere, trapping radiation like an unwelcome anorak in midsummer. On the podcast, we spend quite a lot of time talking about the sources of those greenhouse gases, most often the CO2 released from burning fossil fuels and methane from things like livestock and decomposing waste. But there's one source we don't discuss very much. This week in Nature, researchers have been using genomics to study the release of greenhouse gases from thawing permafrost. Now, that might seem like a particularly out there bit of interdisciplinarity, genomics and atmospheric physics. But luckily, I had two researchers from the University of Queensland to explain. My name's Ben Woodcroft. And my name's Caitlin Singleton. Ben and Caitlin are studying the microbes within permafrost. I gave them a call to find out more, and Caitlin started by clarifying what permafrost even is. So permafrost is soil that has been continuously frozen for at least two years. And that, of course, is made up of a mixture of minerals and also of organic compounds. Yes, that's right. Plant material, peat. Yeah. In many cases, the permafrost has actually been frozen for hundreds of years. People might have heard of melting permafrost being a a source for carbon being released into the atmosphere. Tell me, how does that process work? The carbon is kind of locked away in the permafrost um, when it's frozen. Um, And so when the permafrost thaws, suddenly this this frozen um, food effectively, sort of like a freezer that goes off, basically it's not the thawing process itself that produces the, the gas, but actually the metabolism of the things you've left inside the freezer. They really drive the CO2 and methane generation at the site and, and therefore climate change. So you've got the microorganisms within the soil that start eating the newly thawed permafrost. Where was the permafrost that you've been studying in this particular paper? So we weren't able to sample the permafrost in Australia because there's no permafrost in Australia. Um, instead, we went to northern Sweden to a place called Stordalenmeyer. So you wanted to look at the things, the bacteria, the microorganisms that are breaking down this permafrost and releasing this methane. To get an understanding of how that process worked, you tried to look at their genomes, but not just an individual genome. You wanted to get a sense of the genome of all of the bacteria and microorganisms in general that were involved in this process. Why do that? That's a very good question. We have to do that because we can't actually grow these organisms in the laboratory. So in that case, we have to use a a technique called metagenomics to extract the total community DNA from the soil of all the microorganisms. And then we uh, assemble all those sequences together into genomes. Using this, we know who is there. And by looking at their genomes and looking at their genes, we can figure out what they might be doing. Um, But in the case of this paper too, we also use metatranscriptomes. We look at the RNA and see which genes are actively being transcribed and also um, which transcripts actually result in proteins being produced with the metaproteomes. 
Okay, so you've got all these these data. You've got this understanding of sort of population in general. Give me some sort of top line numbers. What you know, how how many organisms are involved in this? How many processes are there? Well, it's it's very complex. We estimate that there's at least twenty five thousand different microorganisms in there. But of those, we managed to recover the genomes for a little bit more than fifteen hundred microbial organisms. And and are each of those working individually, or do they work in networks? You know, are these do they each responsible for different parts of these biochemical processes? Definitely, they are working together. Um, you've got the organisms that start up the top, and they start degrading the complex polysaccharides, um, such as cellulose and xylan, and then they pass on um, a lot of the byproducts to different organisms down the trophic network. So you end up with um, fermenters, for example, taking in some of those more simple sugars, and creating the products that the methanogens or methane producers can then use, and then those methanogens produce the methane. And then some organisms, um, they can actually use that methane as their carbon and energy source, and they release carbon dioxide. So it's quite a complicated network, and there's a lot of partnerships involved as well as competition. What does this provide us in terms of you know, useful knowledge going forward to try to combat or at least better understand the way that the world is warming? Understanding the ways in which the microorganisms respond to permafrost thaw and, and climate change um, is a very large and overarching question. But the only way that we can make inroads into that question is to try to put these microorganisms into a framework that we can talk about them in. So different microbial communities are going to react differently to different climate changes um, because there are going to be different chemicals present in the system. So getting out the genomes of these microorganisms and, and learning about what they do um, gives us sort of an, a window into that system. Um, and potentially the, the long-term implication is that somehow we can use this kind of information to better predict how Earth systems are going to change in the, in the coming years. And do you have a sense of the sort of overall impact that could have, you know, how much carbon could be released from permafrost? Yeah, it's predicted to make up to 174 petagrams of carbon available for microbial degradation and um, for potential release to the atmosphere. But I think it's on the same order of magnitude as the amount of carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. That was Ben Woodcroft and Caitlin Singleton from the University of Queensland in Australia. You can read their paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. Still to come in the news chat, we'll be hearing about a gene therapy to treat a deadly disease in mice. That's at the end of the show. First, though, Adam Levy is back with this week's research highlights. Astronomers have peered at a black planet. A few years ago, NASA's Kepler telescope spotted a distant star dimming about every two days. This regular flicker indicated a planet was crossing in front. But now, on closer inspection, researchers have been unable to observe any starlight gleaming off the planet's surface. This suggests the planet is more or less completely black. Observations like these could help astronomers test their theories of how reflective clouds form, or don't, on these faraway worlds. Shed some light on this story in the Astronomical Journal. Looking at the big picture of DNA from tumours could be crucial for unlocking their codes. The genomes of tumour cells often have some pretty big differences from healthy cells. Stretches of DNA can be duplicated or deleted. 
Researchers have used a recently developed technique to sequence long chunks of the genome of a well-studied breast cancer cell line. This technique uncovered regions where genes have been fused, as well as thousands of tweaks in the genome's structure. Many of these have escaped methods that analyse shorter DNA fragments, suggesting these long reads could provide important information about how cancer genomes evolve. Give that a good long read in Genome Research. We had a story recently on the podcast about researchers who'd created self-assembling silica cages just 12 nanometers across. There's even a video about it on our YouTube channel. Well, we've got some more tiny structures on this week's show, also involving silica, but made with a totally different kind of nanotechnology. Here's Shamni Bandel to tell us more. Using DNA to code for proteins is the basis of building an organism. But living creatures aren't the only things that DNA can build. Over the last 12 years, scientists around the world have been creating extremely small shapes and structures using a technique called DNA origami. We are now not treat DNA as genetic information carrier, but treat them as normal materials to create DNA nanostructures. This is Xiao Guo Liu of the Shanghai Institute of Applied Physics. Now, DNA itself isn't the strongest or most stable building material. So, in a paper in this week's Nature, Xiao Guo and his colleagues report on a method for toughening up DNA nanostructures by coating them in silica. I gave Xiao Guo a call and started by asking him about the limitations in the current methods for making DNA nanostructures. One major obstacle is that uh, to keep the structural integrity of DNA nanostructures, we need to use high concentration of cations such as magnesium. But if the DNA nanostructure is dried, it will suffer from and distorture and deformation. So that's a, a limitation of DNA origami, that you either keep it in a cation solution with a high concentration of positive ions, or if you dry it out, it might get distorted. Um, and so that's why you wanted to improve the mechanical properties of these tiny shapes. We are trying to copy the structural information of DNA into inorganic materials. Uh, in our paper, we choose silica as an example. Initially, we want to enhance the mechanical property of DNA nanostructures because since some DNA nanostructure is rigid but not rigid enough, they always distorted in solution. And so we want to give it a tough shell to protect it and maintain the initial structural design. So if you make a small DNA nanostructure, um, it's quite delicate and will only survive in certain conditions. So silica would be a much more useful material to use. Yes, I think so. In fact, uh, this is inspired by biomineralization in nature. Uh, you know, many insects have exoskeletons that protect their gentle body, right? So we use silica shell to protect the gentle DNA inner core and also maintain the structural information. And what can these small structures be used for? For example, it could 
act like circuit board, uh, we can hybridize conductive nanowires on these DNA silica structures to realize nanoscale circuit. And and the fact that you can make such such tiny structures is obviously very helpful, but it's not just the size or the structure, it's also the, the composition. Uh, it has a flexible DNA core and a hard silica shell. So the total structure is both rigid and flexible. And in the paper, you mentioned using different thicknesses of silica, so you can vary that level of rigidity. Um, and the, the kind of structures that you can create seem very varied. In the paper, there's microscope images of tiny doughnuts and cubes and pyramids. But at the moment, it's still limited to just using silica as that extra material on top of the DNA. Is that right? Yes. Uh, currently, we can work, only work on silica. And that is not enough. I think we just shed light on using DNA nanostructure as uh, user-defined template for create inorganic materials. In fact, we are trying to use other inorganic materials like metal oxide uh, because um, we prove the possibility of using DNA nanostructures as template. That was Xiao Guoliu from the Shanghai Institute of Applied Physics in China, talking to Sharmini Bandel. You can read the paper over at nature.com forward slash nature. And to find out more about how DNA origami works, check out our stop motion video on youtube.com forward slash nature video channel, where you can also find the recent film on silicon nanocages. Finally this week, it's the news chat and senior reporter Heidi Ledford joins us in the studio. Hi, Heidi. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. Right, for our first story today then, um, well, it's something you've written about, actually. It's a, it's a gene therapy in mice. So what's going on? Uh, this was a really interesting story. So it was uh, pegged to a paper that came out in Nature Medicine, and it describes gene therapy done in mice, as you said, but in fetal mice. So they're still in the womb when they were treated. And what is this therapy designed to treat? It's designed to treat a particularly severe form of Gaucher's disease, which um, is caused by a mutation that interrupts the breakdown of a particular lipid. Um, so this particular form of the disease is very severe. It, it um, often kills children before they're two years old. And this isn't something then I guess you can treat in a child. So they're looking sort of pre-birth then. Yeah, it's a tricky one because it affects the brain so much. And there's an enzyme therapy that you can give to basically replace the enzyme that's disabled in these children. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't cross from the blood into the brain. So it, it's not very helpful for this particular form of the disease. And in this study, the group used a virus that was able to cross the blood-brain barrier um, to deliver the gene to the brains of these mice fetuses. Yeah, that's right. And and that's something that is a, often a bit easier to do in a fetus rather than even a, a newborn baby because the blood-brain barrier is more permeable in a, in a fetus than it is in a baby. Mm. I mean, we're so far so good then. I mean, but what are some of the hurdles that need to be overcome for this to be, you know, used outside of just mice and potentially in, in humans in the future? So for this particular one, they would have to test it in um, more extensively in non-human primates, and then there would be all sorts of testing before they could move it into the clinic. But sort of broadly speaking, I think one of the challenges for treating uh, fetuses as opposed to babies is that you have to be really sure. I mean, you always have to be really sure of the diagnosis of the disease, but that can be trickier when you're dealing with a fetus and, you know, you don't have as many sort of measurements that you can take. So just because a baby has a 
particular mutation or a fetus has a particular mutation, in some cases, it may not necessarily manifest the disease. There may be other mutations that compensate. There may be other, you know, factors involved. So they need to really be sure before they, you know, start treating a fetus that that fetus is going to be sick. And this work was published this week in Nature Medicine. Um, what are some of the scientists behind it saying? I spoke to Simon Waddington at University College London, uh, who was one of the lead authors on the on the study. And this is, you know, this idea of fetal gene therapy is something that he's been interested in for quite some time. And he said for a long time, people would just look at him like he was crazy whenever he brought it up. But in the past few years, um, there's been so much success uh, and so much sort of momentum behind gene therapy administered to children and adults that people are starting to think, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we could treat some of these diseases even earlier before they've done, you know, too much irreversible damage? Oh, really? I mean, I guess we've heard the phrase sort of gene therapy for for a long time now, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how close are we then to something actually being available to the general public, do you think? For fetal gene therapy, I think they've got quite a bit more work to do. Um, but, you know, other gene therapies are, are coming along. I mean, the FDA has approved approved its first one last year, and there's a lot of interest in, in pharma right now to develop them. Okay, then, Heidi. Well, that's certainly a story to keep our eye on. Yeah. Well, for our next story, then, let's cover something very, very different. And we're going to cover a telescope with an awesome name that has just had its official opening. Can you, can you tell us about that one? Yeah, the name, I think, is my favorite part. It's called the Meerkat Radio Telescope. Uh, it's just been launched in South Africa. Um, it is enormous. It consists of 64 dishes. Each one of them is 13.5 meters in diameter. I mean, my goodness, that's a lot then. And to call it just a telescope then is kind of a misnomer. It's maybe more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So Meerkat uses a technique called interferometry, um, which links many different dishes and antennas together so that they can act as a single telescope. Each dish collects a relatively weak radio signal from space, and then these are all combined and filtered and turned into data um, that astronomers can use. So Meerkat in particular is eventually going to be part of the Square Kilometer Array, which is this massive intercontinental facility um, that, when it's complete, will be the world's largest radio telescope. I mean, I know that, say, last week was the opening But actually, this telescope's been doing things since, I think, 2016, right? Um, I mean, what has it accomplished so far, and what are are people hoping it accomplishes in the future? Um, So far, they've put together the most detailed radio image yet of the center of the Milky Way, uh, which has this supermassive black hole. Now, in the near future, it's got two more projects um, in line. One of them is to look at these fleeting astronomical events called transients, which include fast radio bursts. Um, these are considered to be among the most perplexing phenomena in, in astronomy. Um, and another project will look at the formation of stars. Okay. Little um, things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Nothing, Nothing major. Right? Oh, yeah. No, no. Absolutely fine. Um, well, what about the facility itself then, Heidi? Where, where is it based? Um, it's in a sparsely populated area uh, in the northern Cape of South Africa. Uh, there's a lot of excitement, actually, I think, within South Africa um, to have this gigantic telescope there. It's, it, they're saying, you know, they hope that it will raise the profile of South African science. I mean, I think it's already sort of dramatically increased the number of astronomers who are working in South Africa. Excellent news. Well, Heidi, thanks for joining us. And listeners, for the latest science news, don't forget to head over to nature.com news. And that's all we have time for this week. But before we go, we always love to hear what you think of the show. So hit us up on Twitter at Nature Podcast or email us podcast at nature.com. Until next time, I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com.